All righty, I welcome you back to your seats. Again, Happy New Year. We are, as I mentioned, going back to the end of the world, praise the Lord, here in Revelation uh, chapter 11. We did leave off for December to just get more uh, Christmas focus, but now we are going through Revelation chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it's time to make our way back there where we'll find ourselves smack dab in the middle of what's called the Great Tribulation. So with that, turn to Revelation chapter 11, put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to just bow before your presence. We know you're here by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We ask that he would soften our hearts and give us the understanding and the conviction that we need to know that your word is important. It's life. And Lord, you said that we can't live by just eating meals alone, but by the word of God so, Father, feed, feed us spiritually, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read from a news article that appeared a couple weeks ago. Ahead of December 21st, which marks the conclusion of the 5,000-year Mayan calendar, panic buying of candles and all sorts of survival essentials have been re reported in China and in Russia and all around the world along with an explosion in sales of survival shelters in America. In France, people were preparing to converge on a mountain where they believed that aliens would rescue them. The, pre <laughs> the precise manner of Armageddon remains vague, ranging from a catastrophic celestial collision between Earth and some planet, or a disastrous crash with a comet, or the annihilation of civilization by a great solar storm. Well, here we are. December 21st has come and gone, and along with it, the long-awaited Mayan prophecy. But the idea of the world ending will not pass away because it's a biblical reality. And as is so often the case, the general public has the general idea right because we were created by God and in his image and there are certain spiritual truths in which he encoded in the human psyche or soul that we all generally know, like the world generally senses there's a God. Most people would agree with that. Um, most people believe there's a higher power. Most people believe there's life after death. There's a general sense out there that things keep going. Most people sense out there in the world that there's a divine destiny about things. The big saying out there is everything happens for a reason. And so there's also this understanding that the world as we know it can't possibly continue on forever. We generally know that. But for most people, they refuse, even though they have the general idea of things, they refuse to come into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance to get the full story and the full truth with all its specific details. Now, the article said Armageddon remains vague. Well, 
Not if you're a Bible-believing Christian. It's not vague at all. Armageddon, of course, is the key code word for the end of the world. Well, in the Bible, the Old Testament, 1,845 references to the end of the world, which is about Jesus Christ coming. Now, let me say this right from the jump. When we talk about the end of the world, biblically speaking, it's more of an emphasis of God's kingdom coming rather than the focus of the world ending. He comes to bring his peace. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the end of the world when he was asked about it, a whole chapter, Matthew chapter 24. The New Testament writers, one in every 10 verse speaks of the end of the world which precedes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of 260 chapters in the Bible, there are 318 references to the end of the world and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to mention the entire book of Revelation, 22 chapters, blow by blow, graphic description of how the Lord will come for his church the Lord will judge the earth, and the Lord will return with the church. Those are the three biblical ideas about how the world will end. Well, he came the first time. The Lord appeared, and we just finished celebrating Christmas, and the first order of business was to loose the chokehold that the devil had on us through sin and death. And so he came to pay for our sins and give us eternal life. Hebrews 9 and verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the world. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. So the way we, the place we get the phrase, the second coming, is that scripture, Hebrews 9 and verse 28. He's coming again. And so we know these three things. The Lord is coming for the church. The Lord will judge the world. And the Lord will return in glory and establish his kingdom. That's the thing. Let me just give you, if you're just visiting, just give you a couple scriptures to just show you what I mean by those things. And then we'll dive in to Revelation 11. The Lord first comes for the church to remove believers out of harm's way before he judges the world in what is called the Great Tribulation. Let me just show you one verse that really much proves this to be the case. Matthew 24, verses 38 to 40, and you could see that. You can leave the lights off until uh, we're done with all the slides. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, Marrying and given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man, just another title from the book of Daniel, which means Messiah, Savior, or Son of God. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. This one verse is what I call a torpedo verse against any idea that the church is around during the great judgment that comes upon the earth because the Lord says when he comes, it will be a surprise. So there's one phase of his coming that takes the world by surprise where he describes himself as a thief coming in the night. And what does a thief do? He comes and takes what he wants 
He sees something valuable, he takes it away with him, and that's what we're talking about. Paul follows that up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, where it says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's the word rapture in the Latin raptizo, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so that is the basis. I could go on, as you know, for days <laughs> about why First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, in the context of the end of the world, says, encourage one another because God has not appointed us to wrath. And then... Ten times in Revelation, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's wrath. Ten times. But the scriptures say, in context of the end of the world, 1 Thessalonians 5, you're not appointed to wrath. Therefore, we see a surprise coming while it's business as usual. Nobody's suspecting that couldn't be true at the end. He takes us away. The second point is then he judges the Christ-rejecting world. And it's kind of ironic that he's coming to bring peace to the earth, but that peace is born out of a tremendous, tumultuous time. And so we see that. Listen to, I'll just read this. Well, Matthew 24 and 21 says, For then there will be great distress. The word there, the ellipsis in the Greek, it's where we get the word tribulation. That's why we name the last seven years According to Jesus' words, the great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Ha, another torpedo verse. There's a new liberal theology called preterism. I've mentioned it once before. Preterism means to have already happened. And so liberal scholars are saying, you know what? Everything you're reading about, it's already happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem was leveled. Jerusalem was one square mile. And what we're reading about and what Jesus just told us is is that this will be a time, let me just say it again, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. World War II is a lot greater than one square mile of destruction. Therefore, in light of Jesus' words, preterism comes undone. All right? Now let's move on to the Lord returning in with in great power to establish. And it's a Christmas uh, scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. His government and its peace will never end. He'll rule with fairness and justice from his throne for all eternity. The passionate commitment, the zeal of the Lord, of Lord Almighty, will accomplish this, the Lord of heaven's armies. And so he's coming. The entire Bible preaches a second coming, a a kingdom where there is peace and righteousness and goodness, and we're looking forward to that. So the Bible's definition of the end of the world, three things. He comes for the church, he judges the Christ-rejecting world, and then he comes with the church to establish his kingdom here. Now, that said, we find ourselves in phase two here in Revelation 11. The church has already been gone, and now we're in the middle of that tumultuous time called the Great Tribulation. Here in chapter 11, we're halfway through. Now, here are the, here's the outline of the Great Tribulation, 
And I don't want to lose you. I'm going to keep it really brief, and then we'll dive into chapter 11. But you do need to kind of be brought up to speed where we are. Revelation 11. So here are the trumpets and the seals and the bulls. Revelation from chapter 6 to 19 talks about the Great Tribulation. The seven-year period of judgments upon the earth, chapter 6 through 19. And the Bible makes it, divvies it up in 21 sections to make it kind of understandable, I think. And so we see seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. We are currently in the pause between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Just to let you know where we're going to pick up, because a lot has gone on. Let me just refresh your memories because it's important. Seal number one was the white horse of the apocalypse, the Antichrist coming forth to deceive the world. Seal number two, the red horse, appropriately colored because it's global war. Seal number three, economic collapse, a black horse representing famine. And then the pale horse, seal number four, uh, a quarter of the world's population gone. The fifth seal, mass martyrdom of those who do not take the mark of the beast. The sixth seal, one of several great earthquakes and geological disasters. Islands disappear. Mountains are leveled. That's the sixth seal. Now, the seventh seal revealed seven trumpets, and six of them have blown already in our hearing through our study so trumpet number one, you'll recall, a third of the earth was burned up in a hail and fire and blood storm. Uh, seal number, uh, trumpet rather, number two, a great mountain, John describes as on fire, was cast into the ocean. A third of the ocean, marine life gone, a third of the vessels gone. Uh, uh, trumpet number three, a third of the fresh water and springs and rivers, poison, nobody can drink the water. Uh, a falling star, John said, caused this poisoning of the earth's drinking water. Number four, trumpet number four, a third of the light of the sun, moon, and stars are diminished. A third of the night is pitch black, not like normal black, a darkness that can be felt. A third of the day, pitch black. God giving two-thirds of the world mercy and saying, Come to me. Come to me. He's, he's doing things gradually. Now, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet are nicknamed the first woe, the second woe, and the third woe because it's a very sad time. It's getting more and more intense. So the first woe, or the fifth trumpet, was about those demonized creatures let out of the abyss and tormenting the world. And then uh, trumpet number six, or the second woe, was the, that military, 200 million crazed military that come out and now wipe out a quarter of the Earth's population. So a quarter plus a third is seven-twelfths, is 58% of the world is gone. Now, that is where we are picking up in the in-between. Now, in between six and seven, you see there, there's a little... That's where we are. It's called a parenthetical pause, where we're getting some spiritual insights, a little heavenly perspective. And in this insight, we're going to be given two 
witnesses that are on earth that are linked to all of the trouble that has come upon the earth, that these are God's witnesses in conjunction giving a prophetic message with all of this bad stuff that has been coming down. With that, we have made it to our text. Hallelujah and amen. And if you're visiting for the very first time, and this is your very first time in church, welcome. (laughs) Let me just tell you, listen, God is a God of love. He so loved the world and he so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believe in him should not perish but come to have everlasting life. The Bible speaks of this God of grace and mercy and love and how to walk with him and be blessed. But it also, and we don't cut and paste, it also talks about uh, the consequences of rejecting that Savior. And it's, uh, as Hebrews says, it is a dreadful and fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I don't want to skip that part. I just want to be, because I'm going to stand before God. And he's going to ask me how I did, like, just going through the Bible, not cutting and pasting. Amen? All right, here we are. Revelation 11, we're in that pause. Seven seals have gone down. Six trumpets have blown. You're totally caught up. And now John is speaking. I do have to say one more thing. (laughs) We're only going to cover 14 verses in front of you. Those 14 verses divide into two very nice sections, one through six, about the two witnesses that I've been talking about, and then seven through 14, a great big miracle. So two witnesses and one miracle. All right? Let's take part one. John speaking, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar And count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure that because it's given over to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, proclaim God's word, for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's a vision back to Zechariah. We'll talk about it. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So let's pause there. You can call this, number one, the two witnesses. Now, the word witnesses is kind of Christianese. It's kind of the talk that we talk When I first became a Christian, somebody asked me if I was going to go witnessing, and I didn't know what that meant. I thought I was going to court or something. Now, witnesses really means you're you're telling God's truth, the truth that you have heard or seen or experienced. And so we can do that with our mouths when we tell somebody about the Lord, but Truly, biblically, we are witnesses. It is not something that you do necessarily. We do witness, but we are witnesses. The way we live our lives 
the change that God makes in us, the choices that we make, we just stand out. And Jesus says, you're shining like light. That's being a witness. And that's what these two men are, but they're very kind of unique in that they're in the tribulation and they're testifying to a really wicked world under intense judgment. But my first thing here that I see is just the mercy of God. You know, Paul was preaching in Acts 14 to a bunch of, uh, a group of pagan people. And he said, you know, even you, he said, you know about the Lord because God never fails to leave himself without a witness. And that comes from his, Paul's sermon there in Acts 14. God, in other words, what it means is no matter who you are or where or when you lived, God always provides a way to find him every single time. Romans chapter 1 says he, by his spirit, makes the truth about him known to every person. But men prefer to exchange the truth of God for a lie. But see, we see God's mercy even in this time when seven-twelfths of the world has already passed away and men are still shaking their fists to God. After all of the judgments I just read, listen to what John writes. The rest of mankind that weren't killed by all these plagues still didn't repent. They carried on living for themselves, worshiping evil things and money, They still were murdering each other, practicing the occult, sinning sexually, and stealing what didn't belong to them. But God has mercy and says to anybody who wants to know the truth, there are two witnesses there. Not only were there two witnesses, but there were 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. Remember those guys? Converted Jews, specially called and protected by God to preach the gospel during the Great Tribulation. So there's light to a world that said, we don't want anything to do with you. There's light. He shines for all men to see, and then we make a choice whether we're going to see that light or walk away. He gives everybody that choice. In Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's exactly what this scene for me is, that the light still shines in the dark place because First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, says this, God our Savior wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. That's God's heart. That's why these two guys are still there. That's why he's going to do all these miracles through them. These aren't just random seals and trumpets. They have a voice and there are cameras rolling and people are understanding. Thus saith the Lord, this is the way to be saved. Don't resist God. And these are the consequences. And so let's move on here. First, we're going to meet those two guys. But first, we get the the, uh, setting. And it's a very important setting. There's a temple to measure in Jerusalem. John's told to measure it. It's kind of like a yardstick. The temple the altar, and the people. Now, by the way, your text in the NIV says count the people. The count isn't in the Greek text. It's measure with the same read. So since it's awkward to read, the NIV says and count the people, but it's the same measurement, which unfortunately obscures the meaning because it's symbolic. God is sizing up the temple and the worshipers inside. And so there's a temple there. Currently, there is no temple. 
Now, here's a picture of what it looks like if you're going to Israel with us. You will stand right there. You're allowed on the top of the Temple Mount, but only under armed guards. There's no reading of your Bible, no singing songs of Christian, because that dome you see is the Dome of the Rock. It's put up there in, in the year 690. The Muslims built that because they said it was their holy site where Muhammad ascended into heaven and got the Quran and brought it back down. Now that's where they built it, supposedly on top of the holy of holy place. Now you don't see a Jewish temple there, and we need a Jewish temple because John is measuring one. Not only that, because the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation is going to go into a Jewish temple on that place and he's going to declare himself to be God and he's going to commit something called the abomination of desolation. The term shouldn't confuse you. It's a very popular term. It came from Daniel chapter 9. Abomination just means something horrible. Of desolation means that brings on destruction. So in the middle of the tribulation, he goes in, the Antichrist goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God. This, then he then breaks the covenant with Israel. All hell breaks loose. That's the seventh trumpet. And then you've got 42 months left that Jerusalem will be trampled. And uh, that brings on Armageddon. But let me say this. The temple must be rebuilt. Now, back in 960, the first temple goes up with Solomon. That's destroyed somewhere around 586. So this is BC, of course. The first temple's destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. All right? You with me? Don't lose me. I know you haven't had your lunch yet, but (laughs) the first temple goes up. Solomon. It's destroyed in 586 by King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. Seventy years later, Jews come back. They rebuild that temple. And then Herod comes in a few hundred years later and expands that temple. Sometimes it's called the third temple. The disciples in Matthew 24 look at the temple that Herod just did extravagant building upon and said, look at those stones. And the Lord said, Matthew 24, just so you know, Not one of those stones is going to be left standing. It'll be flattened to the ground. To this day, 1,946 years later, there is no Jewish temple. According to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, there's no Jewish temple there, but there has to be one. So, because John is measuring one, and we don't need a lot of space. Did you know the word for temple there is sanctuary? The holy place in the holy of holies, 500 square feet. That's all that we need for a temple and even a makeshift one. The size of a tiny apartment needs to go up there. It won't take very much time to do that. Now, you may be asking, how in the world is that going to ever happen with the Dome of the Rock there? A man named Asher, and by the way, I'm really glad you were thinking that. (laughs) A man named, a Jewish physicist who's in the news, a very smart man, is making the claim that the real Temple Mount is slightly north, that the Holy of Holy 
is, was not under the Dome of the Rock, but it's actually further north. Now, if that's true, and this pleases everybody involved, a temple, 500 square feet, can fit anywhere up there. What will happen there? And by the way, the Temple Institute, which I have visited there in Jerusalem, is already preparing with blueprints for such a temple, for they already have all the priests' clothing, seen it with my eyes. They've got the pots and the pans and the utensils. They've got everything ready. They're waiting to institute the rebuilding of a temple on the Temple Mount, the Temple Institute. You can go on their website and read all about it and see the pictures. Now, if that's the case of Asher uh, Kaufman saying that it's not necessarily need to be built right there, guess what, folks? We can get a little temple for the Lord, and we got a little temple for Allah, and then the Muslims are happy, and the Jews are happy, and there's a peace accord brokered by the Antichrist, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, and the world is finally at peace, even though there's a lot of corrupt. Uh, cataclysmic judgment happening, but somehow everybody's happy, except the Lord. And when the Lord's not happy, it's not going to turn out very well. Amen? That's the deal with the measuring. The measuring is saying, I know all about this temple, and I know who's in it, and it's an abomination. And why? They're offering animal sacrifices again. This is a big affront to the Lord, who is the Lamb of God. The Lord himself entered into the sanctuary with his own blood, the blood of bulls and goats. This is just a temporary symbolic thing, signifying the death Christ would die. So for two reasons, we know this isn't the temple God is very happy with. Offering animal sacrifices for sin, and then the Antichrist comes in and defiles it, calling himself God. Let me show you that verse Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then we'll move on. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is a direct fulfillment of Daniel 9.27, abomination of desolation. And Jesus in Matthew 24 says, folks, speaking to the Jews, this is the super sign, the abomination of desolation. When you see that happen, run for your lives, speaking to the Jews. Because the seventh trumpet sounds, the seven bulls are going to fly, Armageddon's coming, the Jews are in trouble, it's time for Jacob's trouble has begun the 42 months. And so with that, now we see the Jews get their temple, but God knows how they got it, what they're doing in it, and how long it's going to stand. So thank you for all of that. The slides and the lights can come back on. Now, to these amazing witnesses, real quick, verse 3 says that they have an appointed time. They have 1,260 days to prophesy. Now, interesting that 1,260 days is used instead of the 42 months. The reason for that is to, commentators say, is to draw a distinction between the three and a half year periods. In other words, they both mean three and a half years. But if you say it in a different way, it shows, well, I'm not talking about those three and a half years. So they prophesy 
during the first three and a half years, the 1260 days. How do you know it's the first three and a half years? Well, because at the end of it, they go up. Jesus doesn't come down. There's still a lot of story. So we know at the end, Jesus comes down. So it has to be the first. So along with the six seals and the seven trumpets, they're prophesying. They are connecting the word of God and calling forth some of these seals down. And so this is why they're going to be the object of great hatred. And so now who are these guys? Well, they're in sackcloth, number one. It's pretty important to see that this is a brokenhearted God. This is a brokenhearted message. They're wearing burlap. It's Bible for sad, mourning, grief. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, which I quote a lot to you guys. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that you would turn from your sins and live. I'm still quoting. Turn, turn, turn from your sins and live. Still quoting. Why will you die? That's the heart of the Lord. That's the heart of the Lord. He is in sackcloth over this. He's not happy about the tribulation. There's good news for those who receive the gospel and bad news for those who don't take him up on the pardon. Now, their function, verse 4, an Old Testament vision here, Zechariah 4. Let me show you a slide again. I kind of jumped the gun. Here's the vision in Zechariah 4 that John is hearing about now. Now, here's what happened. There are two, supposed to be two olive trees on the sides, and they have pipes that go straight to a bowl. And that bowl is feeding the lampstand that's usually in the temple of God. Now, here's the connection. Follow me. Back when the Jews were in exile, they came back to rebuild the second temple. Solomon's temple leveled. Two guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua, high priest. Zerubbabel was the governor. They were really discouraged about what the work that they had to do there to rebuild the temple. So Zechariah, in Zechariah 4, God gives Zechariah a vision of two olive trees pouring into the lamp, fueling this, and saying, go encourage those guys and tell them this vision, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Finally, something you recognize, a scripture. That's where that scripture was born, to encourage two men in front of a daunting task, the temple was in rubble. They had to rebuild it. And he says, you know what? You guys, you're plugged into the source, the Holy Spirit that keeps the flame of God and the life of God and the light of God alive. You're, you're going to be able to do this. And so these two witnesses then, thank you for that, these two witnesses in the tribulation having to share the gospel with the world in the light of all this judgment happening, the Antichrist is in power. The world is totally deceived. And he says, you know what? These guys can't be shut down. They have power because they're plugged in straight to the Holy Spirit. And they're going to defeat the enemies. They're not going to have their light snuffed out until it's time. John chapter 3. This is the verdict 
Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So there's the olive trees, the Holy Spirit feeding these two guys, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, and that light is bringing life, and the world hates them. The Antichrist wants to snuff them out. But it says in your verse, verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, great scene here for a movie, fire comes out of their mouths to devour their enemies. Now, this reminds us of Elijah and why many experts say surely one of them is Elijah. I totally agree, and I can show you that in the scriptures. But this fire coming down to devour enemies, we've seen that before. Elijah's life, right? Second Kings chapter 1, a great story. This wicked king didn't like what Elijah was saying. So he told 50 soldiers, go and get that dude and bring him to me. And they go to get Elijah, and they say, Oh, man of God, the king wants you. And so he says, If I am a man of God, may fire come down and devour you. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. Fire came down and devoured them, and almost me as well. So the king says, You know what? 50 more guys, go out. The 50 guys are like, Ooh, are you kidding me? But they go. 50 guys say, Hey, Man of God, the king has called you. He says, if I am a man of God, may fire come down and devour you. (laughs) Again, the king says, you know what? You 50, go and tell him. Man of God, come back. So this group goes, and one of the soldiers goes out. Second Kings chapter 1, it's good. And the guy comes, and he says, Oh, man of God, wait, hold on. I'm married. I have three kids. (laughs) Just hold on. We believe. We believe. And the Lord tells Elijah, go with him. Go see the king. So the guy, (laughs) the guy, you know, he saw a pattern. He connected the dots, you know. And uh, so that's Elijah. So who are these guys? Well, it doesn't tell us. So, you know, we don't have to press it. But let me assure you, one of them is Elijah because... No, seriously, I'm going to prove it to you right now. Don't start with me, because you're going to lose. Number one, the fire thing. Number two, verse six, they have the power to cause droughts. Ah, Elijah did the same thing for the same amount of time, 1 Kings 17. Uh, Third reason, Elijah never died. He never died. God just took him out. You see, that, that kind of helps us there. Uh, and number four, how about this? Malachi 4, 5, and it's my closing case. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. There you have it. Now, some of you may be saying, well, wasn't that Elijah? Good point. Matthew 17, the Lord is coming down Mount Transfiguration with the disciples, and the disciples ask him, What's up with that prophecy about Elijah coming? And Jesus says, Elijah shall surely come and prepare things. However, if you're willing, John the Baptist functions as the Elijah for my first coming. But he does say, 
Oh, Elijah shall surely come, however. You check it out, Matthew 17. Be like the Bereans in Acts 16. Don't just take my word. Take notes, go home, open your Bibles, go online, figure it out, and there you have it. Amen? <laughs> All right, moving on. So there you have it, Elijah indeed. Witness number two, to quote Warren Wiersbe, he says, look, it's pretty much a done deal. Witness number one, Elijah. He says, as for witness number two, your guess is as good as mine. However, let me tell you who it is. <laughs> Listen, folks, uh, and, and I'll tell you why people stop short of saying it's Moses. Number one, it says they had the power to turn rivers to blood. Exodus chapter 7, verses 11, watch Moses in action. All right, so we got check number one. Number two. Uh, they represent the law and the prophets. And who are they witnessing to? Israel. You got the law and the prophets right outside the wall there. It's a beautiful picture. Who shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. That's number three. Now, some people would say, but um, Moses died. Therefore, he's disqualified because Hebrews 9 chapter. Verse 27 says, it's appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. So, uh, can't be Moses. Maybe Enoch, but not Moses. Ah, I disagree. Because I can show you people who died twice. Hmm. Lazarus, come forth, only to what? To have to what? Yeah, he died twice. Jairus' daughter, twice. The widow at Nain, her boy, Luke chapter 7, he comes to life. But guess what hap happens? He dies. So generally speaking, it is appointed unto men once to die. And then the judgment, unless the Lord wants to use you as a sermon illustration, <laughs> and then you're going to come back to life and then have to die again. So that's my point. It's Moses. Let's turn. Oh, wait. This second section is very brief. Trust me, here we go. Verse 7 through 14, then we're done. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast, oh, first time that Antichrist is called the beast, he will be called that 38 times. The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That would be Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men from every tribe, language, nation, and people will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters into them and they stand on their feet and terror strikes those who see them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And then they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on <laughs> the ultimate like, see ya. <laughs> Verse 13, at that very hour, 
There was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. There, we're done with the parentheses. The seventh judgment is as trumpet rather is about to blow. All right, we've met the two witnesses. Now the one tremendous miracle. And it happens in the great city. Why is it called the great city? Why is it the greatest city in the world? Well, because it is the city of the great king. He makes it great. Where was he crucified? Where was he buried? Where was he raised from the dead? Where, from where did he ascend into heaven? When he comes again, he goes to reign in Jerusalem. The center of everything in the millennial kingdom, which is coming, is centered around Jerusalem. So therefore, it's called the great city, but then it says, which is nicknamed or figuratively, but the word in the Greek is spiritually seen as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, because of its immorality. Egypt, because of its idolatry. So in that day, they will be very immoral in Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're, and they'll be worshiping idols and worshiping other things other than the Lord. And so one tremendous miracle here, the two witnesses are martyred. You know, may I say this to you if you're thinking, come on, that's pretty fantastic. That's kind of hard for me to take in. Really? It's the gospel. You're looking at what you say is going to happen to you. You're going to die. You're going to be resurrected and you're going to ascend into the presence of the Lord. The only problem here is, is that the cameras are rolling. We actually see it taking place instead of it all being invisible. And by faith now, it is literally in front of the whole world. If the spirit of, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also raise your human body in just the same way. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 and so what a beautiful thing. Dr. Jeremiah said this about this rage that is um, these men are the object here. These two witnesses will confront men to their faces about their wickedness. They will stab hearts with conviction of God's truth and seem to be the very cause of all the suffering that's come upon the earth. The hatred of this pair will be intense. Yeah, verse 7. Notice. They only are killed after they are finished with God's work. My friend, you are indestructible until God's story in you and through you is finished. When that day comes, then he wants to see you and you will see him. He will summons you. But they have power and they are protected because his work is not done. He says, after they have completed and run the race and finished the course that God had set out before them, then and then only are they overcome. And they're overcome by whom? The Antichrist is called the beast. You see his satanic origin there coming up out of the, uh, in the Greek, abuso, the abyss. He's called the beast fittingly because he is like a beast uh, he is the one who attacks, overpowers, and kills them. How does he do it? They say, well, they probably shot dead. 
And then the verse 10 tells you there's a joyous celebration. I call it anti-Christmas because it's for the Antichrist, you know, anti-Christmas. It's, they proclaim a holiday. The word there is euphrino in the Greek, and it means to make merry or to party, to drink and to carouse. And so they're drinking, they're making merry, they're giving gifts to each other. They've taken three days off of work. The cameras are rolling. Everybody's watching and rejoicing. No more talk about Jesus. No more reminders about God and morality and his laws. No more talking about sin. No more consequences for our sins. And listen to this. That could never have been true 50 years ago, but now it can be fulfilled. The whole time the bodies lay there men from every people tribe and language and nation are watching 50 years ago people rolled their eyes yeah oh the whole world is watching them for three days the whole world every nation tribe and tongue every corner of the universe is watching yeah now yesterday i went on a webcam and watched the western wall live Right there in my office, I was in Jerusalem looking at people. I also saw later lights of cars going by in another place in Jerusalem. It was so, I'm I'm sitting there. You don't even have to be in your living room. You just have to have something in your hand. And you're watching something around the globe. This prophecy can now take place because the cameras will be rolling and focused on God's two witnesses laying dead. What an insult in the Middle East not to bury, and the Greek word is their corpses lay there rotting for three days while the world is in a joyous celebration. But the celebration is short-lived. And now this is the part that I want to see. Well, I will see. I always say I want to get the video. Oh, we have front row balcony seats (laughs) so it's going to be good listen how does that go you know so the the guy from cnn has got the microphone you think i'm kidding the whole world is watching how else are they watching they're watching the two bodies and they're talking there they lay the cause and the we want to get a shot of them look at their faces get a close-up and then suddenly what is it? A twitch? A sneeze? You know, Moses just, you know, or I don't know what it is, but suddenly the warm color comes back. There's a movement, and they stand to their feet, and the world freaks out, and you could hear a collective, uh oh. <laughs> the whole world is terrorized. What do you do with two guys that can't stay dead? I mean, now what? The breath of life of God enters them. They stand to their feet. They're watching, and they're terrorized. That's unbelievable. You know, righteous people, John Walvoord speaking, a righteous prophet is always a torment to an evil generation. And then I added this. Truth speakers are like face slappers to those who wish to continue to do the wrong thing. So finishing up, there's a voice from heaven that just says, hey, just in case you're not making the connection, these are my two witnesses. And anybody interested in coming up to heaven? 
Because here's an illustration of the gospel. You die, you're raised to life, you ascend into a presence where there's a welcoming voice that says, come up here. There it is. One of the reasons I think it happens on camera for all the world to see. Here's the way out. Be like them. Come up here. Now, the interesting thing Jesus says in John chapter 5 is he says, don't be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will be rise to be condemned. Now, all human beings will hear the summon, come up here. Every human being will be resurrected. But not every human being will hear Welcome home. The difference is those who rise who are good. It's as biblical good is those who receive Christ in faith, who repent of their sins, for we know there is none good. Good in the Bible is to be a believer in the goodness of Jesus. And evil in the Bible is to reject Christ, to live in your sins, and according to your own agenda. You know, so they're well-received. He says, come up here. You know, when Stephen, in his last breath, he preached to the enemies of God, the Pharisees, and they, they, they execute him. And they're piling stones on top of him. And he looks up, very moving, Acts chapter 7. And he says, look, I see the Son of God standing in the glory of heaven. And a door open. That's our story. That's what you're going to see. A door open with a welcoming voice that says, come, come over here. Get up here. A big hug and a big smile. Why? Thank you for the scars, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. We're in good hands. Not about my goodness. It's about his Mercy, But your legacy and mine, when it's all over and he's done with the story, he's going to say, come up here. And you're going to be absent from your body and present with the Lord. Amen. So on their way up, you know, one last shout out, looking down at them. There's a big earthquake. 7,000 people died. The city had about 300,000 people, according to the people who know stuff and write books. Uh, and... And there's a massive earthquake. And, uh, and then it says, some of them, the remnant, gives glory to God. About time, people. Hallelujah. What did it take? Seven seals? Six trumpets? 58% of the world gone? And finally, somebody says, you know what? Praise the Lord. <laughs> and so uh, we see that happening there. Now, once the two are just tiny dots out of sight, it's time for the seventh uh, trumpet to sound and with that there's going to be a celebration in heaven an overview of what's in store and then we're going to see this war in heaven and satan cast down that's coming here's my five one-liners that i take away from this chapter i just like to sit back and say what did i learn from this well first of all i have a headache from all of it because there's a lot to keep up here that's why i lost all the hair you know, there was just too much thinking. It just shut off the blood supply. All right, number one. God's sovereign. 
He's on the throne. It may not look like that all the time, but he's the one who's calling the shots. He's way ahead of the game. Number two, God's merciful. He's always wanting people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. There's always a second chance with him. Number three, God's faithful. He will allow us to live out our days and fulfill the purposes he has for us. Number four, God is the source of life. He will raise believers from the dead and let us enjoy that life even today and welcome us warmly into heaven. And last, number five, God is just. Do not mess around with him. He will not allow unrepented evildoers to go unpunished, but those who reject his offer of forgiveness must deal with the dreadful consequences. He'd rather us not. He'd rather us turn to him and be saved. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that we find in your word and the sobering realities of the prophecies that say that this, end, this world as we know it will come to an end and your kingdom will be established. Help us to say that that will happen not in spite of us, but in keeping with how we live our lives in cooperation with us. We thank you for your great love in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, closing song.